So there's lots of data about what television shows people watch from Nielsen. There's lots of data of box office for film. So all of our competitors have, have lots of data too. The difference is we have lots of people in our content group that can make decisions. In a major studio or network, every decision gets reviewed five levels up and you know micromanaged. And what we do is we have lots of independent people who are then making decisions, big decisions, uh, about co what content to do and why. And some of them won't work out, okay? Some of them will be a mistake, but that's okay. That, my friends, is the unmistakable voice of a former vacuum cleaner salesman. And he'll be giving us insights on how we can unlock and unleash our superpowers on the world. We'll also discuss the latest and greatest in the streaming wars. That's one small step for man. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. We choose to go to the moon, not because they are easy, but because they I are hard. I have a dream. You can't handle the truth. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Super, 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 super. Super you. Thank you for joining us for today's Super You Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kwame. Most of you know me as Equal Man. We'll be joined by a former vacuum cleaner salesman. That's right, Reed Hastings, the chairman and founder of Netflix, was a former vacuum cleaner salesman. And he'll discuss how he went from selling vacuum cleaners to one of the richest men and most influential people in the world. And that's what this podcast's all about. It's all about all of us have that superpower within us. It's all about having that courage to wear the cape. This episode, of course, is brought to us by Netflix. So let's get into a little background on Reed Hastings, who's the founder and chairman and former CEO of Netflix. So Reed Hastings was born October 8th, 1960 in Boston, Massachusetts. As you know, I lived in Boston. And just as a side note, I'm here in Austin. My kids always thought they were both born in Boston, which is an amazing healthcare system. So it's a great place to have children. They were born at Brigham and Women's hospital great hospital so thank you everyone there what an amazing experience but living in boston they thought they were born now we live in austin texas so very confusing when you're little so when we first moved here our kids were four and two so they always thought and said that they were born in boston texas but here we are in austin texas i'm super happy it is raining outside i never thought i'd say that having grown up outside of detroit i never thought i'd say gosh i'm so happy it's raining because it rains up in michigan all the time but it hadn't rained here it didn't rain in the whole month of july so it's beyond dry record heat average temperature was 103.8 degrees in austin so i could not be happier sitting here with my coffee watching the rain drop outside but here we are we're going to get some insights from reed hastings as we sit down and figure out what does it take to invent something like netflix and how do you make those changes over the years to make sure that netflix stays on top of its game. So again, continuing with a little bit more about Reed, he was the founder of Netflix. And for those playing the height game that we play here on the show, Reed Hastings height is da, 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 five foot, 10 inches, which is nine inches shorter than my six, seven, but he's nine miles smarter. Now Hastings studied mathematics at Bowdoin College. I'm sure I mispronounced that in Brunswick, Maine, graduating with a bachelor's degree in 1983. After serving in the U.S. Marine Corps, he spent two years with the Peace Corps, most of the time teaching math in Swaziland. Now, 
Iswatini. Again, probably mispronounced that as well. He returned to the United States and went to Stanford University where he received a master's degree in 1988 in computer science. Subsequently, Hastings became a software developer, and then in 1991, he founded Pure Software, which he sold in 97 for a substantial profit. Great. That's some good insight into the man, Reed Hastings. Now let's get into what advice he has for us. Welcome to the Super U Podcast, Reed Hastings. Give me the quick version of beating Blockbuster via mailing DVDs. Many forget that Netflix started out similar to Blockbuster in the vein of there were physical components, in this case, DVDs, but you save the hassle of us going to Blockbuster, most importantly, the hassle of remembering to return the DVD on time so that we wouldn't get fined, and also going to Blockbuster on a Friday night, and everything was empty. Everything was gone, because on the shelf, They'd have, for those that remember on Blockbuster, they used to have the shelves with the actual DVD case, and you'd know if the the title was out on whether or not if the DVD case was actually physically there. So talk to me, give me the quick version of beating Blockbuster via mailing DVDs, and then subsequently, once we started the transition, how did you eat your own lunch and transition to streaming? Eating your own lunch, meaning that's a Silicon Valley term, but eating your own lunch, meaning if someone's going to eat your lunch, it might as well be you. Meaning that if you own the iPod or you manufacture the iPod and you see that the world's going to a smartphone, that you better be the first person to invent the best smartphone. So that's an example of what Apple had to do. They had to eat their own lunch. They had to cannibalize a very profitable product in the iPod. And you had to do something very similar, I believe, when it came to how do we stop mailing DVDs and go to this new thing called streaming. Well, I got hosed by Brian's movie, Apollo 13. (laughs) So I rented that movie from Blockbuster a long time ago, and uh, I forgot to return it. It was a $40 late fee. And I remember it because I was so embarrassed about it, I didn't want to tell my wife. (laughs) And uh, about a year later, my then company, I was running a tech company, got acquired. I was looking for something to do. And that was just one of those incidences that stuck with me of, you know, this clearly got to be a better way. Uh, And so that was the genesis of Netflix. And when we started, we knew, look, uh, DVDs, you know, a great digital packet, you know, it's got five gigabytes on it and you can mail it overnight. But eventually the internet would be fast enough to uh, stream. Uh, And it took a lot longer than we thought. Our business plan in 97 said uh, in five years, half our business will be streaming. And we got to 2002 and it was 0% of our business. And we said, well, in five years, uh, that was when we went public in 2002, we said in five years, half our business will be streaming. And we got to 2007 and 0% of our business was streaming. Uh, But then the third time we made the prediction, it more than came true. We said five years, half our business will be streaming. And by 2012, it was 80%. So it just shows you if you have something dumb and you say it long enough, it becomes smart. (laughs) It's just an incredible story and transition when you think about it. It's not as easy as people think to eat your own lunch. But now where's the path now for Hastings or the path for Netflix? What's the path forward? Now it's execution. It's how do we have, you know, the basic idea of uh, you all give us your money. Thank you for that. And then it's up to us to turn that money into joy. And we have to do that better and better. And if we create shows that you love, you'll continue to pay us. 
And so we get up and think every day that we got billions of dollars that the customers are giving us, and we have to turn that into joy. Uh, and that's this movie and that show, and, and, and that's hard work, right? But that's our focus is to do that better and better. Yeah, it's very interesting, and I hate to bring this up because it wasn't the best time, but it actually turned out to help you dramatically. And this is what I talk about with my classes at Northwestern University. I was talking to them about this in the fall in our digital leadership class and personal branding class and innovation class is that many forget that in the fall of 2011, that you're faced with a difficult challenge. You're sitting there figuring out, when do we go to streaming? And you did what a lot of people would do is that you said, all right, let's take the path of least resistance. Let's do both, um, which often is not a good path to take, but it's the easier path to take in the short term. So you said, let's break our company up into two parts. We'll have the DVD mailing business, and then we'll, we'll call that Quickster. So let's rebrand that to Quickster, and then we'll keep the Netflix brand on the streaming side. Well, all the Netflix users hated this because they love the ability to either get a DVD or stream. It was up to them at the time whether they got mailed a physical DVD or whether they were able to stream. So they could do both. So they hated the fact that now there's two different companies so they'd have basically two different subscriptions. They hated it so much that your stock dramatically tanked. And it's hard for our listeners to see this, but just imagine that you've got this line going up and all of a sudden, uh-oh, boom, crater down, just a massive cliff. So imagine this graph with this cliff on it and that's what quickster caused and it was so bad that it actually helped you because it allowed you and the executive team to decide quickly whoa 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 that was a terrible decision let's get rid of quickster let's go all in on the streaming and then from there that graph goes from cliff to again just a rapid ascent for netflix stocks so the question that lots of the entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs that listen to this show walk us through some of your failures as an earlier entrepreneur and your challenges with being a people pleaser you know not giving out critical feedback because a lot of us that start our companies or maybe we're working with in a large company and we're entrepreneurs is that we're people pleasers and for the most part that's allowed us to ascend that allows us to rise rapidly because we're actually helping people out we're unselfish. But there's also that balance, especially when you become a leader within the organization, or in your case, the CEO, is how did being a people pleaser eventually start to hurt you that you weren't able to give that critical feedback, which is, which is necessary to grow a business? Yeah, um, uh, my first company was a tech software company, uh, started in 1990, it got acquired in 1997. Uh, and it grew very quickly, um, but very chaotically. And I always felt like I was half underwater. I was not doing a very good job as a manager. The products were really good, so the sales increased. But as a leader and manager, not very effective. I wasn't very honest. Um, I was uncomfortable about being honest with people. So I, I valued kindness very high and consideration. And there's, that's a good value too. But ten, you know, uh, honesty is really important at work. So I'd be frustrated with you and I wouldn't really tell you. Mm -hmm. uh, but it would, of course, manifest itself. Um, and it took me a long time to have the courage both to be able to be an example of honesty myself, uh, to receive it, to give it to give it. And ultimately, of course, it, you know, obviously for all of you, you're probably sitting there thinking, of course, you know, how, why was that so hard? Uh, and I, I think part of the reason was I had never led anything when I started the company. Yeah. So in short, I mean, honesty is the best policy, as my mom used to say. And so that's also true as a leader that honesty is the best policy. 
Now, speaking of leadership, talk to us about charismatic leadership and why that can only get you so far. A lot of people have the misnomer that all these leaders are these charismatic leaders that they're Richard Branson, uh, when in fact most are introverted, that they're actually just good at steering the ship. They're not charismatic at all. It helps if you have both. Um, Those are those rare folks that have both, like a Steve Jobs. But if you look at it, Talk to me about how you you say that charismatic leadership can only get you so far. Well, interestingly, in the you mentioned the startup coherent thought that I worked at um, when I was twenty eight, and I worked so hard as an engineer writing code. You know, I was there every night, all night, kind of thing. How hard can you push? And uh, you know, I would build up over time on my desk this kind of gross set of coffee cups. Um, and then, uh, you know, now and then the janitor would clean them all. And I learned that if I just waited long enough, I didn't have to clean them. And one morning I, I came in really early to work, you know, five in the morning. Uh, and I walk into the bathroom and there were all my cups um, being cleaned. And I looked up and it was our CEO, uh, Barry Plotkin, who was cleaning them. And so, you know, it's early in the morning. I'm like, I'm trying to understand the situation because I see him there scrubbing away. So finally I just asked him, I was like, Barry, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm cleaning your cups. And I was like, have you been doing it the whole years? Yeah. And I'm like, and you never said anything? No. Why? And he said, well, you work so hard, and this is the only thing I can do for you. And I just thought, well, I will follow this guy to the end of the earth. And that's exactly where he led us. What happened (laughs) is he was an incredibly charismatic guy that didn't have a good market product fit vision. And we built an incredibly elaborate product and we ultimately sold one copy of it to one customer and they never installed it. So, you know, it's like, it's a funny thing about leadership. You can be very personally compelling and high integrity, that's great, but you also gotta lead people in the right direction, not into the box canyon. Now, in terms of innovation, why do you, unless you are an airline or a hospital, why does Netflix avoid the trap of being an air prevention company instead of an innovation company. I see this all the time. We use examples all the time at Northwestern University with our students, is how do you avoid falling in that trap of an air prevention company instead of an innovation company? How are your employees at Netflix similar to athletes? Yes, I've heard you say that before, gotta gotta believe it, but how are your employees at Netflix similar to athletes? The goal is to get people to think about what's best for the company. How do we grow? How do we please our members ever more? And we want people to be independent thinkers. We don't want them to ever hide anything from their manager, but we want them to be thinking about how can we do things better? And that first principle thinking is what's helped Netflix evolve through so many changes. Most of our industrial culture is not really focused on creativity. It's focused on error prevention. And that's good if you're an airline or a hospital. Okay, but if you're a creative organization, what you want to do is make it safe for people to make mistakes and to try things. Sort of managing on the edge of chaos where you're you're very creative, but it hasn't Mm. actually tipped into chaos. You know, we model ourselves on professional sports where you want the team to really work well together and to play their heart out. I mean, athletes know that they can be injured at any moment, but they don't focus on it. They focus on how do they play the best game that they can. And our employees are similar. They focus on how do they have an incredible professional experience, learn a lot, um, grow an incredible amount. 
Now, over the years, Netflix has evolved to become a content producer, which is a very different business than selling DVDs or streaming. So how do you decide what content to produce? How does the Stranger Things happen? By the way, by the way, one of our most popular Super U podcasts is with Stranger Things star Millie Bobby Brown. So for all you listeners out there, and even you, Reed, if you want, is take a listen. It's one of our most popular shows is with Stranger Things star Millie Bobby Brown. I'm put in a situation which is, you know, sometimes it's different as maybe a little bit different than other other young people, but it's 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 almost the same situation, you know. Mm. I'm being watched by everyone and and basically every move I make is being watched by everyone. But but actually it's not that quite it's not that different in any way. I mean, there's teenagers out there that are evolving in themselves and they have to go to school every day and deal with whatever they're dealing with or whatever they're dealing with at home. And so for me, we all face the same complications. But at Netflix, how do you decide what content to produce? Yeah, it's definitely not the data. Um, so there's lots of data about what television shows people watch from Nielsen. There's lots of data of box office for film. So all of our competitors have, have lots of data too. That's not. The difference is we have lots of people in our content group that can make decisions. In a major studio or network, every decision gets uh, reviewed five levels up and, you know, micromanaged. And what we do is we have lots of independent people who are then making decisions, big decisions, uh, about co what content to do and why. And some of them won't work out, okay? Some of them will be a mistake, but that's okay. And because if you get, you know, Orange is the New Black and you get Stranger Things and you get the Old Guard, you get, you know, these big successes. So um, it's really organized around distributing power. I talk about how a perfect quarter for me is one where I've made no decisions. All I've done is advocate, influence, inspire. Um, and, you know, I do have to make some decisions like uh, promoting Ted to COO, uh, Ted Sarandos, um, who's been with us for more than 20 years. So again, I do make some, but they're as few as possible because what we wanted to do is to really have the other people make the decisions. And um, again, th that's worked extremely well in content because then we can attract very talented people out of CBS, um, out of HBO, because they get to make decisions and they get to run independently. Now, we all love underdogs. I was a walk-on at Michigan State basketball, Rudy Story. So I love, 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 love underdogs. How do you maintain an underdog mentality? Meaning when you become a Netflix, when you become a fang, you are in the fang. When you think about Facebook, you think about Apple, Netflix, Google. When you become a fang company, how do you maintain a mentality, that underdog mentality? Oh, we are uh, so much the underdog. So uh, our uh, content budget is about $3 billion. Uh, and uh, ZDF just here is 8 billion euros. Okay, and then you add NHK and BBC and NBC and Sky. And when you look at how much is spent on production around the world, we are such a tiny fraction of the global entertainment market. So to answer your question, uh, when you feel successful, then you reframe the lens in which you compete so that you're always the underdog. I'm always thinking in the uh, scheme of history how small our efforts are. And I try to read a lot of history and I think that keeps me grounded. Even though we try really hard, we're passionate about what we do, 
that in the long term we're making, you know, still very incremental contributions. I love reading history. History repeats itself because no one listens the first time. As a futurist, people always ask me, like, how do you predict the future? I go, look, I can't predict specific things. I can't predict if TikTok's going to beat out Instagram. But you can see that social media is going to be a thing. Um, so you can tr- predict the trend. You can't predict the specific tool. If I could, I'd have five of my own personal jets right behind me. But you can kind of predict the trend. You just can't predict the winner. You don't know if it's going to be Lycos, Ask Jeeves, Excite, Yahoo, or Google that wins the search wars. But you certainly know that search is going to be a thing because you've seen history over time as it repeats itself. You can see, oh, this pattern, this is a pattern recognition. So it's great that you read history. I myself love reading history, especially around World War II, as it also helps me, especially World War II, it helps me realize how lucky I am to live today and that we aren't in a major world war, just to see what the leaders did during this trying time. Um, And it's also great that we're not sending 18 to 25-year-olds being sent off to die. Uh, It makes our problems, my problems, my specific issues, my points of stress appear much smaller. So by reading, it helps me reduce my stress by reading this history. And it also helps me learn what did these leaders do during this challenging time? Because again, these patterns repeat themselves. So you can kind of learn with what worked and didn't work from history before it. Currently, I'm reading uh, Eric Larson's um, The Splendid and the Vile, which is about Winston Churchill's leadership. Outstanding book. Um, That is actually historical. It is um, history, not historical fiction. I I love to read a little bit of historical fiction, but this book's actually what really happened. What happened here today on the Super You Podcast is my hope is that you got some insights that'll help you become better. It'll help you unlock and unleash that superpower that's within all of us. It's all about having that courage to wear the cape, And those that listen to the show know that it can't be done without the great talents of our producers. That's Jake Brin, Maritza Gutierrez, and also Kelsey Gomez. So a huge thanks to the amazing team here at Equal Man Studios. And a huge thanks, as always, to you, the listener. And thanks to our sponsor today, Netflix, for making it all possible. But again, it can't happen without you. Without listeners, we don't do this show. So really appreciate you tuning in. Definitely keep those emails coming. It's just equalman at equalman.com. If there's a topic you want covered or if there's a question you want answered, just shoot me an email. It's equalman at equalman.com. And my hope is that you, this week, start to unlock and unleash the superpower that's within all of you. Again, this is Equal Man reminding all of us, until next time, it's not what we take from the world, it's what we leave behind. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Super, 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 you. 